Genius, it takes a lot to get on my show. Genius, you're probably someone we'd like to know. You're really good at stuff, you probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius, get onto my show. Howdy, folks. Welcome to Living with a Genius. I'm your host, Omar Crook. Happy Monday to all of you. It's freezing here today. I mean, it's all relative, right? It's 58, high of 58. Yesterday was a high of 56. But man, it sure feels cold being a, a Southern California guy. Uh, you know, I lived in Cincinnati for a while, moved out in January. This is over a decade ago. Gosh, like 15 years ago now. That was cold. I wasn't used to that. But you know, it's been a long time since I lived in the snow and 58 is cold to us here in Southern California. What else? Oh, last night I had a great time talking to my, my pal, Marty Schaefer. We were talking about, uh, you know, getting older and the things that you learn as you get older. One of the things I, I realized, and we talked about it last night, is that I, uh, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you're going to do something. I've always, I've always been pretty hard on myself knowing that I have uh, capacity to, to be good at lots of things, like all of us do. And uh, whenever something wasn't accomplished that I wanted to do or, or thought that I wanted to do, I'd really come down on myself. And with this podcast in particular, I've come to the realization that uh, I will not promote it to its full, fullest extent. I can. I have the capacity to. Uh, but I just won't. I don't like it. Uh, I have, I'm busy doing other things. I've got a family. I've, I've, I'm working hard to to uh, support the household and to make sure our house doesn't fall off, you know, f fall down around us. And I have social things that I like to do. And frankly, I'm just not going to promote it. I, I'm, I'm not, I don't know how to do it. I'm not good at it. I could take the time to learn it. So uh, I think I'm going to hire somebody to, uh, or, or at least barter with somebody or look for somebody to help me promote it. So if there's anybody out there listening that is interested in working with me to promote the podcast, you know, we'll work something out. Absolutely. I've decided I'm just, I'm not going to do it. And I'm asking for help. That's where I am. So, you know, that's what you learn when you get older. That it's okay to, to not, not do everything, even, even though you think you can do everything. It's good to realize when you, when you need to ask for help. So that's that. That's my Monday uh, word of wisdom. Now, on this show, I'm thrilled to announce that I have CEO of LA Opera, Christopher Kelsch. I see him in the house uh, for every onstage rehearsal, which I find impressive. He doesn't need to do that. We see him backstage, always greeting us with a smile. But I never have gotten to know him. This is my 12th season, and I, uh, I, I think I've said 11th season for, for a long time. Uh, last year, and I, I actually think this is my 12th season. I looked it up. Parsifal 2005 was my first show. Anyway, Christopher is tall, thin, very well-dressed, uh, very still. It's hard to get, a, hard to get a, a, a read on him, so I was very happy to sit down and, and get to know him and, and realize that, that he's just an a extraordinarily educated, uh, well-mannered, eloquent, steady, thoughtful person that I was kind of intimidated to be around. This it's it's I don't want to toot my own horn, but it's pretty rare that I feel tongue tied around people and I really uh uh stepped on his uh stepped over him a lot during this interview. I was nervous. Uh I I have a a, a certain amount of jocularity to myself, you know, to the way that I speak to people and, and my, my demeanor. That really came out. So cut me some slack. That's not to take away from his uh, uh, ideas and the way that he imparts them. And, and uh, I really love the way he, he thinks about art and the place of art in not only Los Angeles or our culture or our country, but the place of art in the human experience and how, how we uh, need it, really, to help, help us figure out why we're all here especially to, to those of us who didn't grow up in religious families or, or have, uh, have that belief system set in place. Art, for me, is a, is a way of making sense of, of uh, the human experience and, and, you know, what's it all mean? What, what, why, do I, why do I get in my car and go do things and earn money and uh, what's having kids all about? I know it seems obvious to a lot of people, but art has always really helped me 
put those things in, into perspective and, and to give them meaning. So anyway, that's, I guess, soapbox number two for Monday. Hope you enjoy our chat. I want to thank you all for listening. Hope you have a great rest of the week. And here's Christopher. Yeah. All right, let me get situated. Ugh. Well, thank you in advance. I mean, not in advance. Thank you right now. Thank you right here and right now for agreeing to do this podcast. My great pleasure. I've been meaning to speak with you. I've wanted to speak with you ever since you came on board. Um, it's funny because we run into each other just backstage very quickly. You're always um, beautifully dressed, impeccably tailored. Your hair is always in place. You're, I mean, really, you're, you're, I think you're like the most put together man I've ever seen. Um, so what's that about? Where does that come from? Was your, was your dad a professional and did he dress this way? Tell me, let's start with that. How did that happen? Why am I dressed well? Um, yeah, it definitely has nothing to do with my father. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I. Th I, th I think it's. I mean, look. I, I'm. I think I'm interested in. I'm interested in aesthetics. I'm interested in beauty. I'm mm -hmm. interested in um, uh, refinement. And so I don't know. It's. It's been something that I've been doing since I was a kid. So it just comes. Okay. Uh, very. Naturally. It feels. It feels natural. It feels like a uniform to me. So. so okay. So tell me about where you started. Where, where are you? Where are you from? Are you from California? I'm from a sub. Nope, I'm from a suburb outside of Boston, about 18 miles south of Boston, called Brockton, Massachusetts. Okay. A very uh, uh, blue-collar, working-class um, town. Okay. Uh, the, I think the city is probably smaller than it once was, but it 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 boasted at the time. I went to a public high school that was the largest high school that side of the Mississippi. So I, uh, my high school had 5,000 students inside it. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and what did your folks do? Were they in music <laughs> at all? No. Uh, my mother didn't work, uh, still doesn't. And my father was a, a salesperson for a confectionery company. Okay. I am, I am, uh, I am an anomaly. I believe they think that I am hatched from some alien uh, uh egg but no uh there is no no connection zero that's interesting okay so no, let's try no that. art no artists no music nothing are you a musician at all do you play an instrument do you sing i was trained in that in that way that they come around to classrooms and public schools and they assign you instruments i was assigned uh the bass violin uh when it was three times my height in elementary school okay um, so that's when I learned to read music, but I would not call myself a professional musician, though. No. Okay. I'm fascinated by Okay. First of all, for those of you who don't know Christopher, he's CEO of the Los Angeles Opera Company. Now, my dad's a CEO as well. I know what he does. He's an engineer. So I know very well what kind of work he does. What do you do all day here? <laughs> How does it work? Uh, uh, do you oversee the general arc of the company and the future for the company? Is it big, big idea stuff? Well, it's it's both. I mean, I you know I've been with the company for twenty years, um, and I came up in the company through the uh, realm of artistic administration, and so uh, both by dint of my personal interests and the fact that I think that the company only exists to produce art to remove barriers between artists and audiences. Mm -hmm. um, I try to start. Well, I, I try to make sure that the theme of every day is ruled by that idea, which is how do you remove a barrier between an artist and an audience member? Mm -hmm. How do you remove barriers between artists and them producing their best work? And how do we make sure that everyone in the company is really focused on what the purpose of the institution is, mm -hmm. which is that, which, mm -hmm. is, which is how do you create opportunities for, for artists and, and art? Um, however... Um, you know, over the course of my 20 years with the company, I have come to understand that everything is pretty related within the ecosystem. And so, as you might imagine, I mean, we have to raise $30 million from private sources every year. Some large piece of my day is uh, making sure that we are um, on track to raise $30 million from private sources every year. Um, some part of my day is spent on marketing, on communications, on PR, on um, education. Mm -hmm. um, I try to have my hand pretty close on the wheel on uh, the artistic product I'm, I still think that's where things can go kind of pear-shaped and so I am actually probably more involved than most CEOs would be on 
artistic planning, casting, creative team management, mm-hmm. uh, working very closely with, with the senior management here on, on those issues. It's pretty varied. Um, in an ideal world, I'm just the white blood cells that are going to where the particular, uh, I wouldn't want to call it a crisis, but wherever the particular needs of that, that day are. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, as you point out, part of my responsibility is to make sure that I am always looking 12 months, two years, five years, 10 years ahead, and also trying to keep my finger on the pulse of what's happening in the culture of Los Angeles, which is a very interesting place to run an opera company, as you might imagine. Sure. Um, and to make sure that the company is adapting in real time to, um, I don't want to overstate this, but to market forces, to the cultural climate, mm-hmm. uh, to the political climate. The that, economy, that sure. Yeah. Um, is, is it a hardship to steer or is it pretty is it pretty fast? How, how does this place move for you? Well, by opera company standards, um, we are incredibly fleet of foot, mm-hmm. um, which is attributable to a bunch of different reasons. One of which is the relative youth of the company so that uh, neither the architects of the institution nor the audience for it have any particular fixed idea about um the institution that that's overly vague but that we we are really fleet of foot mm-hmm. and then there's this funny historical anomaly which has to do with the fact that we're in los angeles and so um everyone uh, when when the company was founded the the artists that formed the foundation of the institution which is the orchestra and the chorus this is more of an orchestra issue than a chorus issue mm-hmm. Um, wanted to remain freelance in order to be able to take more lucrative work uh, with studios. Now, sure. that work has waxed and waned over the course of uh, the last 31 years. But what it means is the institution, from a financial point of view, is remarkably flexible um, and responsive in a way that a older company like a San Francisco or a Chicago or a Metropolitan Opera can't necessarily respond to that because the way in which the contracts are established mm-hmm. are less um, responsive. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's a mechanical idea for me. I think that uh, the character, the DNA of the institution has always been very um, engaged in inside the community Mm -hmm. it's it's always looked outside um sometimes institutions can get in their own way by getting very very insular and being uh really focused on the preservation of the institution itself sure in a highfalutin sort of way do you mean or economically i think that the i I mean i think that institutions can sometimes be slow to adapt Mm -hmm. because they're they're designed to preserve themselves Mm -hmm. um Whereas I think that the company that Peter founded was so was was already looking from from the moment of conception, it was already engaged with the world. It was mm-hmm. engaged with the international opera scene. It was deeply engaged with the experiment of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and I think that's only he become more and more uh, a focal point mm-hmm. as the company has matured. Mm-hmm. Um, now I have to admit that I I honestly did not know you'd been here oh. for two decades. Yeah. How did that start? Since the dawn of time. Yeah. Uh, it started, I was, uh, this is a long story. I was in um, graduate school. I started working for um, the Spoleto Festival in Charleston, South Carolina. Sure. I start. I, I did an internship there. I, uh, through a funny series of events, I suddenly was, became the rehearsal administrator. Um these stories overlap a little bit, but I, I ended up remaining at the Spoleto Festival for five years, and it was pretty formative in in my career and in the way that I looked at the world. But mm-hmm. um, I was in uh, graduate school at the University of Michigan. I met uh, David DeCura, who was at the time uh, both artistic director of Michigan Opera Theater and Opera Pacific. Mm-hmm. I had a very, very successful classical um, theater company in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So with the hubris of youth, the two founders of the company, um, well, there were three of us, uh, decided that we would move the company to Los Angeles. It promptly fell apart as we crossed the county line. But I had the assurance of knowing that I had a job when I arrived, mm-hmm. which was uh, to become company manager of Opera Pacific. I, um, really, you know, I sang at Opera Pacific for 
quite a few seasons. Oh, you did? I did. So I was there in, I was there, uh, in the end, I was only there for nine months, but uh, in 1996. So the last, uh, and in that period was when David DeCura left, right. a man named Patrick Beach came to run the company. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a little bit of uh, chaos around that transition. Well, there was always chaos at Upper Pacific. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was in... It was an interesting company, yeah, and and, and very admirable in in a lot of ways. Sure, but, uh, there was a woman named Andrea Allison who I was friend friendly with, who was the assistant to the artistic administrator at the time, Christopher Hahn at, at LA Opera. Mm-hmm. She was leaving. She called me to interview for the job. I did. Um, I didn't get it. A woman named Tessa Bergen. This is a lot of detail, but a woman named Tessa Bergen took the job. She was getting a divorce from a man named Chris Bergen, who mm-hmm. is the author of many of LA Opera's super titles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, she took the job uh, six months later um, in a production that was really wonderful here of uh, Returning Ulysses, uh, fell in love with the guest conductor, and they ran off. And so actually the job opened up again wow. um, about seven months later. And yeah. uh, Christopher called me. I came up. I interviewed with uh, Peter Hemmings in the very office that we sit in today. Yeah. And I did one last stint at the Spoleto Festival that summer and came to work here in uh, August of 1997 with uh, Fedora, with Maria Ewing and, and Placido Domingo. And sure. uh, at were you, that were you time, I think the here? second of the second uh, uh, revival of the Herb Ross Bohem, which we've seen a lot um, since then. Sure. Uh, at the time, I lived in West Hollywood. And you were you were commuting down Orange to County? To Orange County. I see. I was. So it was yeah. a great move for you. Uh, yeah, but not... Yeah, not not just for 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 geography. I, sure. I felt a I felt a real kindred spirit with um, Christopher and Peter at the time, and mm-hmm. I mean the company's gone through a, a series of pretty dramatic changes between um, then and now, and yet I believe in this very deeply that there's there's kind of institutional DNA, and I think that the the place in a way still resembles. The, the place that was forged by the founders, most of whom are still on our board, and and by Peter. Sure, I, I mean I've I've been so this is my eleventh season uh, with the company, and I've always I'm constantly impressed by the, the 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 craftsmanship and the and the quality of the productions that we that we turn in, and the the quality of the singers that we have, the familial collegial feeling among amongst the chorus and the staff. Um, it's it's really a pleasant place to work. Um, well, that atmosphere, I, I, I attribute a lot of that to this this DNA that I'm talking about. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, people talk about this a lot, that the the atmosphere of this house is different than the atmosphere of other houses. Mm-hmm. Now, I hear that from the artists, too, the, uh, the singers that come through that I've yeah, interviewed. Yeah, and from yeah. a competitive point of view, I mean, mm-hmm. part, part, of, part of our job, part of my job is to attract the world's best artists, and that means, you know, uh, less so conductors because we we have such a um, incredible roster inside the house, but mm-hmm. principal singers, designers, directors, and you know we are still in the opera world. We are still um, out here in the sticks, right. particularly for singers. And so one of the attractions that we have um, is that we have an atmosphere here, which is one not of coercion mm-hmm. but one of cooperation, in which people are being um, we try to adapt the support system of the institution to support the work of an artist, right? Um, as opposed to trying to throw them up against a wall in right. order to get their best performance out. And that is one of the means by which we can compete with Covent Garden and Munich and San Francisco and Chicago to to get those kinds of artists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a kind of a natural life cycle, which means that you know we could boast the fact that we had. Um, a run of four productions with Netrebko and Viazon, and then they end up leaving us uh, because there's an economy of scale which the Met can offer that we can't offer. Mm -hmm. So that's just part of the natural cycle. Mm -hmm. But it does, I mean, it's important to me personally that that the house runs like that. It's really important to Placido that Mm -hmm. that is his natural state. His natural state is that of uh, warmth and generosity. Um, It was the state of of Peter Hemmings. uh, it's really important to me that we make sure that all the people that we curate that are part of this grand experiment in terms of staff and artists are, are, are all working to maintain that atmosphere because it's rare and it needs to be protected. Right, right. Now, I'm glad you brought up Placido. I've had conversations with colleagues of mine about Placido. What what does the post-Placido epic look like here at I don't, at I don't, Opera? I, What's going I don't to happen? Know, Are you going to bring in Bono? You know, or, or, or <laughs> like, what, what do you do? 
Sting. Who's going to be the the guy that brings everybody Sting. in? We are. We're going to bring in Sting. You know what I mean? It's it's funny. I, I get this question a lot. It's not something oh, you I, do. I think okay. about. Well, no, it's just not something that I think about very deeply because I don't. I don't see any. I mean, he he is a man who moves through the world, um, uh, with with an incredible uh, sense of of youth and brio, and mm-hmm. I mean, he 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 puts me to shame, frankly. I'm everybody, I've, I don't know so, anybody that works more than he does. Yeah, so it, it's not something that I think about very deeply. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you know, he's just renewed through twenty twenty two. I mean, I've had the privilege of working alongside him for for twenty years, and I, I don't. I don't see any incentive to make that stop, and it is part of my job to make sure that he doesn't see it either. Sure. Um, I don't think that he's done here. I don't. No, think, no, I don't of course. Th- no, I mean that I don't think. I I don't want to speak for him, but I don't. I don't think that he's accomplished everything that he's wanted to accomplish. And if you take stock of this man's career, which is genuinely sui generis, I mean the the last kind of mountain he has to climb is is this idea of of being taken seriously as an administrator. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's a lot of uh, slightly silly and lazy things that get said about about that idea, um, about him as as general director. But I think people misunderstand the criteria by which uh, the constituency here judges him, which mm-hmm. is not the same criteria by which you would judge uh, David Gockley or Peter Gelb. And frankly, is the reason why I'm here. You know, p- part of the reason I'm here is to be the boots in the ground for his artistic vision. Sure, I mean, it, it, there's nobody that compares to him now or in history. Frankly, in in more than one way. I mean, it's unbelievable. I, I guess my question is the when when he is eventually not here, is there is there a necessity to bring in somebody of celebrity or somebody of I don't know how to put it. Like he he's the reason I'm here. I mean, I'm 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 personally interested in the idea of a kind of uh, grand curator hmm. um but i mean you look at the masthead of the Ali opera we are we are kind of it is a remarkably flexible institution in that you can bring in someone like a matthew coin who can make a kind of immediate impact on the institution sure and is given license to do so by people like placido and james and grant there's no sense of kind of ownership over where the ship is so mm-hmm. um yeah. I don't think it's a surprise to people to know that I'm interested in multi-year programmatic threads. I'm interested in um, a kind of a a long look at at, at certain kinds of repertory. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in sustained relationships with artists. I don't know. It's In the end, it's not really up to me. It's right. kind of up, it's up to the board. But I do think that um, this model of the kind of artist curator and the institution has a kind of responsibility to that artist to kind of follow their muse, that is really interesting for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the idea that the institution takes on the character of that particular thread, which is engendered by the, by that person. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wouldn't say celebrity in and of itself is that compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, vision. And I, and I yeah. don't, I don't, yeah, it's yeah. vision. Sure. It's vision and taste. Sure. And uh, a kind of relentless pursuit of excellence. That's mm-hmm. a really important thing to organize an opera house around that um, we almost get there every time, but we never quite get there. It's this carrot and stick mentality, which is really useful because it means that the institution's always striving to be better, to be more. And the orchestra and the chorus can always sniff out a phony. Oh, sure. (laughs) So there is something really admirable about somebody like like Matt O'Coin coming, and you think, holy shit, I mean, this guy... This is the real thing, and I like working with this guy. And yeah, it, it, and I mean, again, I think I, I go back to my responsibilities. I think my responsibility is to make sure that um, those phonies are few and far between. Right. If not, if not um, entirely absent, yeah, yeah, absent from the from the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. Right. Now, did you always have an interest in artistic administration? I mean, it seems like it goes back uh, pretty far, back to when you were in college. I mean, is this is? I, I think what I'm getting at is that most of my guests who perform at a very high level or have uh, achieved a very high level of success within their fields seem to have one thing in common, that, and that is, for the most part, they knew what they wanted to do when they were kids, and then they pursued that. Is that is that the case for you? Tell me how this started. Let's go back to the, the beginning, when you were falling off your bicycle. <laughs> uh no, I mean, I, I grew up. I grew up in a suburb of Boston. I had zero exposure to opera. We were between opera companies, 
um, so we didn't have one. I had uh, limited exposure to classical music um, at all, relatively limited exposure to theater. Um, it's something that I fell into in high school almost immediately. We, you know, one of the privileges of going to such a giant high school was that um, we had incredible natural resources in the, in this in the actual physical plant. Mm -hmm. So we had uh, two theaters, one gigantic theater, I think it was an 1800 seat theater and one 500 seat theater. We had a full-time TV station. We had a full-time radio station. Wow. We had an entire building devoted to fine arts. And there was a kind of a little light bulb moment for me in my freshman year. I think, you know, um, one goes kind of looking for one's tribe. Um, there was a light bulb moment for me almost immediately. I don't, I don't know why I decided to audition. I, I did, but almost instantly I found my tribe, and that that became a really important community to me. Um, this is the theater department. This or is the orchestra. The, this or? is the theater department. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, I acted in a couple of shows. I started directing almost uh, immediately. I was directing musicals. I was designing posters. Um, you know, if, if there was some fundamental thing that I stumbled on, although I wouldn't have been able to articulate it at the time, it was that I was attracted to, I mean, this is a kind of a debased term these days, but, you know, I, 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 I backed up into being an aesthete. I was interested in aesthetics. I was interested in storytelling. And I was interested in the kind of exerting control over those worlds and was interested in that kind of escape. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't thought about this too deeply, but I do, I do think that as a... You know, growing up in a Roman Catholic Irish immigrant family, despite the last name, um, in the 1980s, you know, I uh, and and as a gay man, I, there was a kind of sense of being the other. Right. And I mean, this is a very common tale. Sure. But that, you know, I, I always felt um, alien and alienated from from inside, at least my family community. Not that they weren't supportive and loving but i just knew that i wasn't they were not my people and in this theater community and in the fact that there was this incredible infrastructure in which we were doing five or six shows a year mm -hmm. you know i i had found that community without ever being able to articulate to myself you know what the nature of that community was was that hard for your family to to realize that you were not that you were an outsider i think it's still hard for them i, don't, I don't think they have any idea um i mean i, I mean i think they're they're kind of you know they're very proud. Mm -hmm. You have a good relationship, but with also your, your folks. Yeah, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, like everybody. But, they're, but there's a reason you don't still live at home. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think there's yes. <laughs> I think they're baffled, frankly. Interesting. Are you an only um, child? I'm not. I have a sister um, who passed away about five years ago. Oh my god. Uh, who's an, an an older sister um, who also was a. I mean, not not really of of this cut from the same cloth. Not cut from the same cloth, mm. which is not. I'm not. I'm not trying to make myself seem no, more exotic than I am. I sure. mean, I think it's a very common uh, story, you know, and, and maybe less common these days when uh, we're well pre-Trump. We were in kind of an age of assimilation, mm -hmm. but I mean, there is a there is a kind of cyclical diaspora, which I think happens with you know young gay people in which they're trying to get away from. Um, the constrictions of of the way in which you are defined the by paradigms, sure, yeah, mm -hmm. and also uh, again, not something I think about too much, but the, I mean, almost everyone that I grew up with is still there. I mean, there's something very specific to Boston, which has to do with there. There is a a kind of reflexive, inherent um, uh, tribalism, insularity. Is it about being Irish to, to in that Boston? Community. Is that part of it? I don't know. This uh, suddenly we seem like we're in a we're in a like a Scorsese film or something but I, I don't know there 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 is something a little a little bit tribal about it. I mean almost almost everyone I grew up with is still within a five to ten mile radius of, of where we grew up sure um, and I say that without judgment it's just an observation I, I couldn't wait to get out hmm. um, as a way of kind of uh, I guess redefining it that being said you know I grew up in a relatively um, I would say economically conservative environment, and so I thought that I didn't exactly know where my path would lead, but I believed that I was going to become an attorney of some kind. I thought vaguely, because I had an interest in theater, I should become an entertainment attorney. Mm -hmm. That was kind of in the back of my mind, mm -hmm. but I hadn't, I didn't, I didn't really figure it out for a long time. Um, in my third year of 
college, I had a uh, study abroad in London and that. That was when the world started to crack open for me. Hmm. It was when I saw my first opera, weirdly enough. What was it? Do you remember? 21, of course. Yeah. It was a transformative moment yeah. for me. Uh, it was the Nick Heitner uh, production of Xerxes. Sure. Still one of my favorite operas, still one of my favorite productions, still one of my favorite directors. Wow. Um, at the English National Opera. Yeah. Um, but for me, part of the... I'm, this is a bit of a monologue. I apologize. I love it. Uh, part of the epiphany for me was here was a community of civilians, of individuals who treated theater in a way that it wasn't exotic for them. There was, right. there was no difference for them between going to a movie in a way, uh, often a movie was more expensive to go to in London than to go to a production of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead mm -hmm. in a pub. <laughs> um, and that it was just a kind of a regular part of the culture. Right. And I found that really inspiring, the idea that um, this thing that Americans, especially opera, of course, have, have turned into something that feels so exotic and remote mm -hmm. was just a normal part of the human experience. And if I have any project at the LA Opera, it's the quest to, to, to make try, that so, yeah. Well, to, try mm -hmm. to, to try to demystify the art form, to, to try to get people to understand that um, this should be part of your regular diet about the if the project of humanity is to understand the mystery that's right of, of the human condition that this this is a necessary part of of that quest what you just said uh, really speaks to me first of all this podcast is about that it's about me not being too erudite and it's about me not being very eloquent and just asking stupid questions of people who have really made an impact in this art world frankly that that's if you really want to get to brass tacks that that's part of my charge here secondly what you said about art being a, a defining endeavor is something I grew up believing and I believe in it wholeheartedly that art of all sorts be it sculpture or painting or, or movement or music in particular for me because that seems to speak to me the most is a thing that defines us as animals above and beyond everything else on this planet it's a thing where we have the capacity to conceptualize our lives and to seek out things that give it meaning because without it, it's just desperation. And frankly, I'm feeling a little bit desperate right now just based on what's happening politically. But uh, it's always music that gets me out of that. I've been listening to more music uh, since January than I think I have my entire life, every day, all day long. Well, I mean, there, there, is, a, there is a real spiritual... I mean, I mean we're in a secular age. Uh, but for me, music, opera in particular, you know, there's a real spiritual component to it. It transcends um, the banal... Uh, animalistic part of our yeah. existence and yeah. it to me feels feels as necessarily ritualistic as going to church on a sunday i mean i'm i'm deeply deeply lapsed but 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 for me a a reflection on human greatness mm -hmm. um and human frailty and human pain that that feels absolutely necessary and i think i, I worry sometimes that as a culture we have marginalized these ideas um maybe pre-Trump and the elevation of, of the idea of, of, of commerce and vocation being the, the, the new gods. Mm -hmm. And in this era, you know, not, I'm not, you know, it'll take us years to sort out what's actually happening now, but we, we risk, I think collectively we risk the idea that, that culture is an affectation, either an affectation of the left for and of the left mm -hmm. or an affectation of the rich. Yeah. The elites. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when in fact, you know, it's it's a pretty fundamental uh, part of of the human experience to my mind, mm -hmm. and um, it's important to me that we fight for the idea that it is a, it is a not only a fundamental human right that everyone have access to this, but that actually, to my mind, it is absolutely necessary to trying to make, as you say, to try to make meaning of of yeah, the, why are we here? What yeah. what is this? Yeah, what what are we doing? Yeah. Now you mentioned spirituality. Are you are you still a Catholic? Lapsed, deeply lapsed. So, what do you think? What do you believe? What happens when you when we kick this the bucket and leave this mortal coil? What's next? Um, I mean, I hover a little bit between um, the agnostic and the and the atheist, except for the fact that I believe that in the presence of the divine, in in the work of art, this mm -hmm. all this all that all sounds a little. Um, it all sounds a little uh, weak, except that you know, if if you if you accept the premise that kind of 
whatever whatever organized religion will call God, I will call love or beauty. Mm. I mean, I, I think that that mankind is capable of of the greatest acts of of humanity and beauty, and it's also obviously capable of of uh, of great um, evil and great amorality. I, I like I like the process of of contending with that. I feel like that gets worked out for me when I go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and when I sit in in an opera house and when I you know, me you know too. E even a piece me of too. music that I that I you know I go to a to Bruckner one and I don't particularly you know that feels like a fascist piece of music to me and yet it puts me in the correct mind um, space to be able to to think deeply about. Um, Mm -hmm. about man and man's inhumanity to man yeah you're a humanist um, yeah yeah me too yeah and that that, that, that I struggle with that uh, you, you know I want so much to see my grandfather again I want so much to to feel at peace which I rarely find um, <laughs> <laughs> just generally <laughs> through the course of the day uh, and the only evidence I have for that is what you're speaking about is the the feeling that I have when I you know, stand in front of a big Cy Twombly or stand, in, you know, or I listen to Beethoven 9, uh, John Elliott Gardner's Beethoven 9 for the 110th time. Uh, I do, I do see that. I, it's I, interesting I, you talk about that because I, I think, I think this is a, I think that's absolutely true. I also think it's a potential dead end that, that what we're seeking is a kind of, uh, a contemplative state, a which is a, which placid. is a state of, mm -hmm. of placidity, mm -hmm. which I think mm -hmm. is actually a, I mean, I, the work that I'm really attracted to mm -hmm. is the one in which I get to really feel the feels. I mean, in which you 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 really um, you have a you have a roiling um, eruption of of emotions. That's that cathartic. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, this, these are old ideas. Mm -hmm. The catharsis is what I really want to feel. Yeah. You know, I, I want to stand in front of a Caravaggio and feel and feel shock and awe. Mm -hmm. um, my favorite projects at the LA Opera have always been the ones that have been uh, maybe the ones that have fallen the most flat <laughs> yeah, with the yeah. audience okay because they're 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 difficult Daring. and mm. well they're emotionally challenging I mean you know our our I think very maybe infamously our, our Dido and Aeneas I think put the audience in the the most difficult space. This I think, one we just did a asked. couple seasons ago yeah, with Barry that yeah. was one of my favorite shows that I've ever participated in yeah I I agree. We we put the audience in a in a in a, a very difficult space emotionally, mm. and I think half the audience really accepted that and wanted to go there and found catharsis in it, mm -hmm. and the other half of the audience really rejected it and maybe resented it for its um, lack of entertainment. <laughs> well, or for its for 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 the way in which it threw you against the wall and and forced you to confront you know right. big issues of mortality and death and. I mean that's a you know it was a it was a difficult evening in the theater I think in the best possible way right and you know on the, on the flip side you know we're we are not an entertainment company we're an art company that's right. the, the world doesn't lack for opportunities to be entertained um, and so I while I think that some of what we do is entertaining I resist the idea that that's what we're here for that's because right. there's lots of different um, venues in which one can find. That, that that's exactly in the way that I meant it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I agree with you with the catharsis. I think, you know, my the, my favorite painting from the very first painting I fell in love with. Well, there were two. There was the triptych, the Hieronymus Bosch triptych. Uh, the whole world in that painting. <laughs> uh, and Saturn devouring his son. So yeah. I, oh. uh, you know, the Goya. So I. Um, I feel that. I think what's happening to me now is that I have two young kids at home, and I just need. I just want some. I just want to Kincaid to look at and just look at the little cabin in the in the woods and wondering, you know, what's going on in there. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's enough. Yeah, a little nostalgia. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned those the Goya paintings. That that's a real. I mean, I you know I'm one of the luckiest people on the planet, and I get to travel a lot for my job, and yeah. I get to go to a lot of opera houses. Yeah. And one of my favorite 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 pilgrimages is to go to the, the Prado, Prado and to oh. sit and to sit in that room. Me too. And if you time it correctly, you're not in the room with the school children. All due respect to your children and any school no, children. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. But that if you time it correctly, you can actually have a, a uh, an experience of those paintings alone, and it will bring you to your knees. I agree. And um, 
I totally agree. And then the math of the, the, the Velasquez upstairs and the, 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 the Dominguez. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Death of Seneca. Yeah. Unbelievable. And the, and the Grecos. And I mean, yeah, it's, I've been very lucky to have been to Madrid, uh, gosh, a couple dozen times now. And uh, that's always it's a good uh, pilgrimage. We go to, to Botines, number one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> First meal, yeah. Botine. And then we go to the Prado. Yeah. Every time. Uh, what else? What else should we talk about? I'm not, now sure. I'm stuck. Now I'm stuck. Yeah, 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 yeah. Boy, I uh, first of all, I really enjoyed uh, the. Uh, 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 oh my gosh, I've lost my train of thought. You know, this happens. This happens on the show a lot. I'm looking forward to Hoffman first of all because uh, I did Hoffman at Opera Pacific with. Uh, Oh, what was his name? I don't know. I don't know. Vincent his, Cole. Yeah, Vincent Cole. And he broke yeah. his leg during yeah. that process. I remember that. Uh, and he hobbled around with a cane and it was really exciting. And uh, I'm, I want to ask, why don't, why isn't Hoffman put on more often? I mean, it's been 15 years since I've seen or done Hoffman. Is it, is it super expensive or is it hard to find a soprano to sing all three roles or what's the big hurdle? Well, uh, I mean, repertory planning, that's a, that's a whole, that's a whole twelve-hour conversation in and of itself. Um, I would say, in general, one shouldn't program repertory for which one doesn't have the singers. Um, this is not always the case because if if you were to do that, then only two theaters in the world could ever do Siegfried mm -hmm. in any in any five-year period. Um, but I mean, I mean, sometimes in repertory planning, the tail wags the dog. Um, in, in this case. I should say about the soprano, the, the production has never been done with a single soprano singing um, all four heroines. So actually, when uh, Diana Damrau, who's actually making her house debut, um, evidenced an interest in it, mm -hmm. um, that really was the was the inciting incident of reviving uh, Hoffman. Mm -hmm. Um, we've done a lot of really wonderful shows. Some of them are on a greater uh, revival pattern than others. Um, that's where it started. Obviously, uh, Vittorio is is an unusual singer because he has the the kind of uh, charisma which grabs an audience by the throat, but but also, and especially in in recent years, has a level of kind of idiomatic refinement which makes him ideally suited. Um, to that, mm -hmm. and it was a piece of repertory that Placido was interested in, which call for me is a callback to the fact that I think that part of the, our responsibility as a community is to support the things that he's supporting, the things that he's interested in. Sure, um, you know French repertory. I mean, strangely enough, we're doing three pieces of French repertory next season, but uh, it it is rarer than Italian repertory, mm -hmm. of course. Is it harder to um, sell French rep? Well, sales—that's a question. You know, uh, I mean, it it is it has to be a consideration. It is a consideration. Mm -hmm. Audience behavior is increasingly erratic, mm -hmm. um, alarmingly erratic, and so uh, how Hoffman sold or how Romeo sold um, is now no longer a particularly compelling indicator of how it will sell in the future because um, the patterns of behavior have changed so dramatically. What do you attribute that to? What do you think? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things. The one that I worry about the most is that the, the the economic model of an opera company was built on the idea that an audience um, was interested in the repertory. And so you would, for instance, spend a million dollars and build a new production of Aida, and then you would bring that production, even in a stagione house like this, you'd bring that production of Aida back every four or five years sure. with you know new principal cast and a new conductor and that the audience would come back because they were interested in the ways in which the piece would change under the baton of a new maestro or you know with a, with a very different soprano saying that the title role mm -hmm. uh, i don't want to speak in generalities but what we find or what i have found is that audiences will now talk about having seen aida not having heard aida um which puts pressure on the institution to try to create theatrical novelty, interpretive aesthetic novelty, storytelling mm -hmm. novelty mm -hmm. to to bring different productions of kind of mainline repertory back because people won't come back because they believe they would have experienced something and would have checked it off the list. Mm -hmm. So that's going on. Um, all of which I attribute to a uh, decades-long deterioration on knowledge of 
and familiarity with um, music, musicianship. Music in yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and people just feel less secure in it. So the letters that I get on my desk every morning after a performance, um, <clears throat> which are equal part hate and equal part love, and for uh, reasons that are can be divided also in half. Uh, I've noticed over the years that you know people feel very secure talking about design, direction, storytelling. Um, I get less notes about musicianship, musicality, uh, musicality, mm-hmm. uh, interpretation, vo- vocal quality, vocal color. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that is worrying. I don't know if that uh, is it a reflection of the town. I mean, the, no, I, I think this is happening all over okay. the world. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, I don't think it's a reflection of the of the town necessarily. I mm-hmm. think I think our audience is is actually pretty uh, admirable in 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 most ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are a, a ton of competitors um, for that both the leisure dollar and the leisure hour. I think maybe the latter even more than mm-hmm. than the former. Um, people just have a lot of different options, and it's a super competitive marketplace. And if you can, if you know, uh, if a millennial believes that there is no difference between a Dodger game and having dinner at Odium mm-hmm. and, you know, watching Game of Thrones and coming to the opera, that, that this is part of a kind of curated mix of eclecticism, mm-hmm. which is packaged and sold back to their friends as a kind of a way of, of kind of packaging and selling yourself. You know that opens up opportunities for us, but it means that people are no longer kind of uh, institutional brand loyal, um, art form loyal in the way that they used to be. Mm-hmm. While we have a pretty um, stable subscription base, mm-hmm. the the single ticket buyer yo yos up and down. So, you know, we have done. I have no wood to, to knock on. We have done remarkably well breaking even by the end of the year Mm -hmm. but it's a real nail biter because our hits hit really big Mm -hmm. and our misses miss really big and it's it's worrying because you can't it's very difficult for the marketing department to find consistency in that behavior Mm -hmm. Uh, year to year show to show repertory to repertory Mm -hmm. singer to singer um, and it's, it must be hard not to pander to the audience that you sometimes need at the expense of tradition and the art form. Well, I think that you know, pander is also in the eye of the beholder. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of hand-wringing sometimes about how often the company does Butterfly, for instance, mm-hmm. as if th- this is a whole other subject. But, I mean, Butterfly is a masterpiece and is, is a foundational piece of the canon. Mm-hmm. And while... Um, Opera goer X may be bored by Butterfly, although I think that seems that personally seems strange to me. Yeah, me too. I see um, every show when it's here. Every show. Yeah, it's one and, of my amazing. And for for me, I mean, I will always, you know, I've seen a lot of uh, absorbed a lot of opera in my life, and I, mm. you know, I have favorites which may be a little bit um, outside the canon. But you know, Tosca is a masterpiece, and I will go to every performance of Tosca. I can. Um, get my eyes and ears on because mm-hmm. I think it's interesting and I mm-hmm. think it's a masterpiece. Um, you know, we're we're in this slightly rarefied world in which one has the privilege of being bored by Butterfly, but the fact is is that fifty percent of the audience that's coming to that Butterfly has never heard or seen Butterfly before, and we have a responsibility to those people too. So, um, while there is an economic consideration there, mm-hmm. Pander I think is a little bit in, in the yeah, eye of the beholder. Sure, sure. And you, I mean, you have to keep you have to keep both sets of constituents in mind and, right. you, and you will you will lose people if you are only doing um you know core canonical rep over and over again right at the same time you know you you have to be able to bring people into the opera house and while i would like to believe that people will feel converted by go to Damrung, mm-hmm. that is a big hill for for someone to climb if they've never been to the opera house before yeah let's talk about the ring that we did a few years ago i i loved it and that, more than any other show, that seems to elicit very strong reactions, either one way or the other. I happen to love it. I've got a, a my dear friend who's a, a fine composer and a terrific conductor, conducts all over the world, couldn't stand it. He, he just hated it. His objections were? Uh, well, it was dark and kind of mushy, and he didn't understand what was going on, and then it looked like a three-year-old painted the set and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I will mount a spirited defense of it, but yeah. it, then it sounds like I'm being defensive and, you know, um, 
was I, that was I, that I, a difficult period of time that mounting that and and uh, because I know that financially it was difficult for the company is was that how did that pan out? Look, I think n nothing nothing in my life that has ever been worthwhile has ever been easy, and the things that. The projects at the LA Opera that have been the easiest to put together have been the ones that I have found to be the most um, embarrassing, um, which is not to say that one wants to foment tension and difficulty, but I, I do think that if, if the house is working correctly, that there is a marketplace of ideas which are, which are being you know adjudicated by very strong personalities, and that you know that always forges a product to me which is better i mean mm -hmm. th the best things that we have ever done have been the ones with the most excruciating processes um give me some examples oh uh, i don't were you here for Damnation de faust was that pre you was... uh uh i think it was with uh who was the faust uh paul groves so this is this is akim's second project with the company yeah i think i saw it and it I think at the dress rehearsal, uh, I was still convinced that there wasn't a show there. I mean, the Rosen Cavalier that we did with with Gottfried Helmwein and Maximilian Schell was. Yeah. By the time we got to the dress rehearsal, the second half of the third act wasn't wasn't staged yeah. and was kind of improvised by uh, under the direction of Kurt Riedel, the Baron Ox. I um, saw I saw that in uh, in uh, Tel Aviv, the same production with the three different colors. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah, it's yeah. a absolutely brilliant piece of work. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think that our, part of part of our responsibility again is is to build an infrastructure that can be able to adapt to absorb that kind of creative tension. Mm -hmm. The audience the audience doesn't care how difficult it was for me. They care a little bit how difficult it was for you. Witness the ring, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but they, I think that bit is is immaterial. I'm I'm not particularly worried about how hard it is for me to put together. Sure, and that. Uh, at my peril, I put things together that are easy for me that allow me to go home earlier at night. That's that's not. I don't. I don't think that's the right thing to do. Um, so was it difficult to put together? Yes, it was. It was the hardest thing I have ever done. Yeah, I mean, um, it was a six month process for the chorus. It was really extraordinary. Yeah, Rehearsing for us, I mean, we, and... you know, I had been working on a ring for the LA Opera since two thousand and one. We, you know, we. Started a process with uh, Peter Musbach, the then intendant to the Berlin Staatsoper, mm -hmm. with ILM, the the, the infamous uh, Star Wars ring. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we then had a uh, in the middle of the decade, we had a six month dalliance with Baz Luhrmann, um, and then in about two thousand and six, we started the process um, with Akim. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean that was the culmination of. Um, a lot of hard work amongst a, a lot of people. Why did it go through so many transmutations on the way to getting the stage? Uh, the the Musbach ILM ring fell apart because in the end, it was built on a premise which didn't come to pass, which was that we could either fundraise ahead of the idea of of what the special effects that were needed, mm -hmm. or or that um, ILM or or an institution like it that that would subsidize the efforts of an opera company. It was a hugely ambitious project. The idea was that we were going to do it at the Shrine Auditorium. Right, that, I remember, yeah. Um, so it was a matter of a, So that was a, it was, a, it was an economic decision. Mm -hmm. uh, Baz, those conversations went really well. In the end, he um, had other projects that, that, that took him away from it. Mm -hmm. Akim, you know, that was a conversation that Edgar and Akim had been having for the better part of a decade and that Edgar had to actually convince Akim that he wanted to do a ring mm -hmm. because he'd been asked a hundred times before and, and didn't didn't actually want to climb that mountain. Um, you know, it, it, the completion of that cycle was one of the proudest moments I've had in my career. And For me as a performer as well, I have to say. It yeah. was extraordinarily challenging to perform. Yeah, and I think that the dividends from that investment that the institution and the community made in that project mm -hmm. still pay off. And so while it, it has this, I mean, to my great shock, it has this kind of dark cloud that hangs over it. It's it's almost nothing but positive from my point of view. Mm -hmm. um, and I deeply, deeply, deeply believe in the project. Now, I had the privilege of having gone through this rigorous intellectual exercise with Akim over four years. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'm back engineering 
um, justifications for what we saw on the stage mm -hmm. that, that weren't there. However, I think the fundamental thing that is misunderstood about, about Akim, because he traffics in the grotesque, that that he was imposing his will on the ring as opposed to the fact that what he was actually doing was illustrating this myth in the most basic kind of childlike storybook way. There's nothing that appeared on the stage that that wouldn't appear in a in a children's book in the um for for a six year old. It was a kind of a very primal mm -hmm. storytelling. Um that people read as radical, and maybe it was radical, but it, to me it was radical in its simplicity. It was mm -hmm. it was such uh, incredibly clear visual storytelling. Um, Is there an amount of priming that you can give to the audience to help facilitate that, or do you just leave it up to them? Um, I don't know. I don't think you. I don't think you want to condescend to them. I don't think you want to have to, you know, mansplain it to them. Mm -hmm. um, if we are doing our jobs correctly, and I think that for half the audience we were and for half the audience we weren't, mm -hmm. it's it's all there. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, it, it is open to interpretation, um, and Akim leaves a lot open to interpretation, but I mean, I think, you know, part of the most controversial part of the production was the first act of Valkyra, you know, and the kind of relentless, um, 99% of your audience is not going to have seen this, but but just the, the kind of exquisite tension of it, I think, was was a perfect illustration of what is going on in that act. Mm -hmm. I have never, ever, ever seen a better first two acts of Siegfried. I think, to my mind, the best act in the entire ring is the third act of Siegfried, but it can be hard to get there mm -hmm. um, in, in productions of Siegfried. I think that those it was a perfect illustration of, of what's going on in it. I, I Yeah. You, I will not say a cross word about it. It was it was um, a lot of sleepless nights, you know, a couple dozen uh, ulcers and a hundred percent worth it. Yeah, yeah. Now I see every season we have, or at least every few seasons, we have one or two pretty experimental productions going on, peppered in with you know Carmen and Boem and the and the hits. Is that uh, are those more challenging productions? pet projects or desires that you have or somebody here in the company or is it a collaborative effort like when we did Bluebeard's Castle for instance that was highly conceptual and I thought absolutely mesmerizing but how does that come to pass in Los Angeles I, I mean I would understand it in Germany and I understand it in a lot of places in Europe that see these these things all the time and you can't well except I mean I think the, the history of the company is that the the audience is willing to accept a non-traditional visual representation as long as the storytelling is clear where we the only places we have ever gone wrong is if the audience feels and i think this is true of every theater in the world if the audience feels like the act on stage is basically masturbatory mm -hmm. and it's hermetically sealed against their participation um they will they will allow this in most german-speaking countries and th there are historic reasons for that but that that's when that's when you run into trouble mm -hmm. but um and not and not everyone loved bluebeard but i think the thing you can't um counter is that barry kosky who i consider to be one of two or three reigning geniuses in our world working today mm -hmm. um he's an incredible musicologist an incredible dramaturg mm -hmm. an incredible visual storyteller i don't think that people can see that work and think that somehow it is a um, misinterpretation of the work mm -hmm. um, and that for me connects to a long tradition that the institution has had at inviting um, you know I think that I mean it's interesting for me we we do very few domestic co-productions we do uh, this goes back to Peter you know a lot of our collaborations have been uh, with European companies the aesthetic sensibility of the institution to my mind has always been kind of uh, Europe facing cutting edge, at least by and, our standards. Yeah, and yeah. to me, mm -hmm. to me that that feels like the, you know, that is that is part of the tradition of the institution. Um, and if the work is good, then um, it's it's worth it's worth doing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, artistic planning is a it's a it's a collaborative process. Um, in this case, I forged the relationship um, with Barry, and so. 
um, subsequent to the uh, monstrous success of that magic flute. Oh, you know, yeah. he and I had a series of conversations about my desire to get him and his work here as often as possible. Um, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that LA is offered his US debut. We're now the only company, we're still the only company that's presented his work. I mean, this is this is a this is a master to my mind, you know, on the scale of of Ponell. And people may misunderstand, I mean, in a way, the magic flute is the anomaly in his work. Mm -hmm. Um uh because it's but, so standard as far as repertoire repertoire goes. Well, I mean, I think I mean, the aesthetic interpretation is 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 very arresting, very surprising. It just doesn't it doesn't f it's kind of a square peg when you look at at and what Barry actually does. But right. I mean, you know, uh, I want the LA Opera to be the place where great artists want to um, experiment with with great work, and so. Um, that that had to do with with forging a relationship and also that i believe that 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 is one of the great um that was one of the great productions we've ever done you know there, there are also things that give me anxiety when i look at repertory planning the the relative dearth of baroque music on our stage is something that i worry about mm -hmm. and so it was a it was a way of getting some baroque music on the on the uh on the stage, we mm -hmm. had never done Purcell. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the pleasures of programming for the company is that um, there's so much repertory that we have yet to cover. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I thought it was odd. I mean, we haven't done Adams in a very long time, but I thought it was while we had done Adams, we hadn't done Glass. So, you know, I've sought to, to correct that. Um, that was an extremely challenging and wonderful experience for the chorus. I, I shouldn't say for the, for me. I, I think I, I think I speak for a lot of the choristers. It was really, really fabulous. Sure, Phelan was a kind of a, a miracle of a human being. I mean, another another artist that one wants to carve out space for and mm -hmm. and adapt the institution to. I mean that. I mean that that is something that I'm very proud of. Is that the and and you can say that in a way all all companies do this but i think that the way in which i observe the staff changing its configuration to support a woody allen and to support a billy friedkin mm -hmm. to support a fellow mcdermott to support someone like john caird you know these these are artists who have different sets of needs and different sets of expectations and and i'm super proud of our staff and the way in which they kind of resort themselves to to support the work they they get out of the way um of of what an artist needs i, I mm -hmm. do you ever do you ever find yourself um uh, with a little bit of envy when it comes to directing does it something that you Zero. nothing nothing you have no interest in it i mean this is where this seems to be your jam this this position that you're in you're i mean look i i i have the you know i was trained as a dramaturg i self-trained as a director mm -hmm. That to me gives me the the t tools. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I can read music. I've worked in in, in opera for twenty five years. I, I think that gives um, James Conlon and Placido Domingo and Phelan McDermott a lot of comfort that that I come with the the correct set of skills and the, the correct set of opinions. And, sure. mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, I try to keep my opinions to a minimum. I, I sit out in the house for every onstage rehearsal. I've got a lot of opinions. You know, part of my responsibility is to make sure that the brand is is consistent. Mm -hmm. um, a visiting director can't possibly know what the aesthetic priorities of the institution are. That's that's my job. Mm -hmm. um, so I can I can talk that language and we can discuss things and we can work problems out. Mm -hmm. But it's not me working out any kind of professional jealousy or or imposing my my will on them. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes I will impose my will on them. But have you ever had a director that you just can't work with, and you've got to say, you know what, this is this is enough? Well, I've never fired. Does, does anyone. that happen? Yeah, I mean, I yes, yes, I I yes. A, there is a stage director who gave me the worst experience in my professional career at the LA Opera. Um, is he the one that's not allowed to come back in the country? No. Oh. <laughs> no. No, actually. There's another one? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, and also, I mean, you know, part of my job is that, you know, I, I need to create consensus and I need to build sure. consensus amongst a lot of um, uh, contrasting personalities and a lot of an environment where there's a lot of um, 
uh, conflicting priorities. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, you have either bad chemistry with someone or you don't respect their craft. But you know, we've never we've never fired anyone. Right, right. However, you know, I hold up the possibility that that, that you know the institution is bigger than any individual participant within it, mm-hmm. and so. Um, I would not let a, a visiting stage director or a visiting conductor imperil the institution. The reputation, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes you have to have uncomfortable conversations with individuals. Sometimes you have to have uncomfortable conversations with singers. Mm-hmm. But again, I think part of the part of our purpose is if if someone's in trouble, we sit down with that person in an environment of kind of support and love. Of what do you need in order for you to get this done? Mm-hmm. I mean, every blue moon, a singer will show up and not have learned their role. Mm-hmm. And then again, you know, I keep using this metaphor, but we rush like white blood cells to try to create a situation in which we can support that that person, mm-hmm. as opposed to saying you're in breach of contract and you're fired. Right, right. Well, <clears throat> have we covered everything? I don't know. Your show? Up to you. Gosh, I'd I'd love to sit and chat longer, but I've kept you for over an hour. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate have, I really appreciated it. I mean, I first of all, I like I said, I, I run into you here and there and, and I always think, What what's this guy's deal, man? Like what <laughs> what's what's the deal? He's always so sharply dressed and he's very quiet and very sophisticated. You know what? You're just a cool dude, man. Oh, sweet. Thank Thanks for much. being Thanks on the so show. Well. Thank you very much. Well, there you have it, folks. The indomitable Christopher Kelsch, CEO of Los Angeles Opera. Thanks, Christopher, for sitting down for such a nice chat, especially for such a long time. It's greatly appreciated, and I look forward to seeing you around in the hallways. I'd also like to thank Gregory Geiger for helping me with my theme song. Still loving it, buddy. Go to laclassical.com and tell him I said hi. And uh, what else? Oh, my gosh. Well, I want to thank you all for listening. It's very exciting. I'm picking up a couple of new sponsors for the first time, so things are happening. I have you to thank, my my faithful listeners. I really appreciate it. Um, and like I said, if anybody out there is interested in uh, talking to me about uh, uh, an opportunity to, to partner up with me and help me out with the show, I'm definitely open to it. Shoot me an email uh, or give, uh, you know, give me a call, and uh, we can chat. All right? Hope you have a great rest of the week. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. Get onto my show.